God is glorious in his saints. Welcome to the Christian Saints podcast. My name is Professor Darren Ong, recording from Sepang in Malaysia. In this podcast, we explore the lives of the Christian saints from the Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox traditions. Today, we commemorate St. Theodosia of Constantinople. St. Theodosia was a nun who lived during the time of the Iconoclast heresy. Iconoclasm was a heresy that opposed the veneration of icons in Christian worship. In the Byzantine Roman Empire, there were periods where this heresy was very powerful, to the point where sometimes the Byzantine emperor himself was an iconoclast heretic. The emperor Leo III, the Isaurian, was one such example. In the year 729, he ordered that an icon of Christ that stood over the Chalka gate of the imperial palace be removed. A group of women gathered to oppose the removal. The nun, Saint Theodosia, shook the ladder of the official who was trying to remove the icon causing him to fall to his death. For her acts of faith, St. Theodosia was brutally killed. She is venerated as a saint in both the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Her feast day is on July the 18th in Roman Catholicism and on May the 29th in Eastern Orthodoxy. Let us hear an account of her story from the website of the Orthodox Church of America. The Virgin Martyr, Theodosia of Constantinople, lived during the 8th century. She was born in answer to the fervent prayers of her parents. After their death, she was raised at the women's monastery of the Holy Martyr Anastasia in Constantinople. Saint Theodosia became a nun after she distributed to the poor of what remained of her parental inheritance. She used part of the money to commission gold and silver icons of the Saviour, the Theotokos, and Saint Anastasia. When Leo the Isaurian, who was emperor from the years 717 to 741, ascended the imperial throne, he issued an edict to destroy holy icons everywhere. Above the bronze gates at Constantinople was a bronze icon of the Saviour, which had been there for more than 400 years. In 730, the iconoclast patriarch Anastasius ordered the icon removed. The virgin martyr Theodosia and other women rushed to protect the icon and toppled the ladder with the soldier who was carrying out the command. Then they stoned the impious patriarch Anastasius, and Emperor Leo ordered soldiers to behead the women. Saint Theodosia, an ardent defender of icons, was locked up in prison. For a week, they gave her a hundred lashes every day. On the eighth day, they led her about the city, fiercely beating her along the way. 
one of the soldiers stabbed the nun in the throat with a ram's horn, and she received the crowd of martyrdom. The body of the Holy Virgin Martyr was reverently buried by Christians in the monastery of St. Euphemia in Constantinople, near a place called Dexiocratis. The tomb of St. Theodosia was glorified by numerous healings of the sick. St. Theodosia became a very popular saint in the latter years of the Byzantine Empire, after the iconoclast heresy had died away. The place where her relics were buried became a site of pilgrimage, and many healings were attributed to her. Let us read some of the accounts of miraculous healings from her intercession. These accounts are from a master's thesis by Helena Ann Dean under the Art History Department of the University of Oregon, titled Icons of the Iconodule, Gender, Politics, and Orthodoxy in the Palaiologan Imagery of St. Theodosia. At the end of his encomium, Acropolites describes three miraculous healings that took place in the shrine of Theodosia. The healed included Acropolites himself, his son-in-law, Michael of Trebizond, and a crippled boy. Each was cured through contact with Theodosia's relics and anointment with oil from the lamp that hung at her shrine. The first miracle involves a severely crippled boy who was unable to walk upright and was forced to drag himself along the ground. Acropolites, familiar with the boy, was amazed to see him standing straight up one day. The youth told Acropolites that he had been taken to Theodosia's shrine, where he had anointed himself with oil from the lamp that hung above her reliquary. Upon doing so, he miraculously regained the use of his limbs and kissed Theodosia's icon in gratitude. This account confirms the obvious, that icons of Theodosia were present at her shrine and were part of devotion to her cult. Acropolites also recounts the miraculous healings of Michael of Trebizond and himself. A riding accident had left Michael in a coma, from which he awakened in a deranged state. After doctors tried unsuccessfully to cure Michael by bleeding him, Acropolites took him to the shrine of Saint Theodosia, where he was miraculously healed through contact with her relics and anointment with oil from her lamp. Acropolites was also healed at the shrine of Theodosia. He had been kicked in the legs by a horse and long suffered from chronic pain. Doctors proved ineffective, but he was miraculously healed when he visited the shrine of Saint Theodosia. Acropolites' encomium was probably connected to the growing reputation of Theodosia's shrine as a site of miraculous healing, which was likely written either in gratitude for the cures of himself and his son-in-law, or was a commissioned piece. Andronikos II might even have commissioned Acropolites' work, since some encomia were meant to be read at the dedication ceremonies of churches restored by the emperor. 
Another account of miraculous healing at Theodosia's shrine came from the historian Georgios Pachimeris, who recorded the miraculous cure of a deaf and mute boy, Pegonites, in 1306. The boy had a dream in which Theodosia appeared to him and pointed him to her shrine. After the boy visited her church and anointed himself with the oil from her lamp, his hearing and voice were miraculously restored. The event attracted the attention of the Emperor Andronikos II, who requested that the cured boy be tested in the presence of the Patriarch. After witnessing the boy's cure, the Emperor, accompanied by the Patriarch and the Senate, held an all-night vigil of thanksgiving at the Church of Theodosia. Given that St. Theodosia was a protector of the holy icons, it is fitting that there are many icons of her, a lot more than the typical female saint. The master's thesis that we quoted earlier was a survey of the iconographic portrayals of St. Theodosia. Let us also read the conclusion of that thesis by Helena Ann Dean, which gives an overview of how Theodosia herself was portrayed in the form of icons. This thesis has shown that the icons of St. Theodosia stand as important evidence of the popularity of her cult in the Palaiologan period. The icons of Theodosia function in several ways. Icons were used in devotional practices at Theodosia's shrine in Constantinople. The small icons from Sinai suggests both the portability of a cult and their intimate use in private devotion, perhaps by monks who lived at the monastery of St. Catherine. The large Naxos icon, with its placement on the iconostasis, showed that icons of Theodosia could be used in public devotion as well. The presence at Sinai of icons of Theodosia, whose healing cult was centered in Constantinople, might suggest that icons could offer access to the healing powers of the saint in distant locations. The image of Theodosia can be considered as a symbol of orthodoxy when the information on her life and cult is looked at in relation to the political and religious concerns of the Palaiologan period. Theodosia's role in opposing Byzantine iconoclasm, which was retrospectively viewed as a period of heresy, associates her with the orthodox cause since icon veneration was central to orthodox doctrine. The inclusion of Theodosia in representations of the tribe of orthodoxy, such as the British Museum icon, furthers this association. The popularity of the healing cult of Theodosia in the Palaiologan period coincides with important political and religious issues concerning orthodoxy. In the written sources, the reign of Andronikos II was associated with the empire's return to orthodoxy after having suffered both the Latin occupation and the union of churches under the Emperor Michael VIII. The definition of orthodoxy was the concern of the Constantinopolitan councils of the 14th century. The strength of the church and orthodoxy were understood to be integral to the survival of the empire. Ironically, the fall of Constantinople occurred on the feast day of Theodosia 
on May the 29th, 1453. When the icons of Theodosia are considered together, they show that Theodosia's image followed a standardized iconography unique to the saint. These icons stand as important examples of portrait icons of female saints. There is a need for a systematic study of female saints in icons, which would provide scholars with valuable competitive material, much of which remains unpublished. Analysis of the icons of Theodosia should be a cornerstone of such a study. Let us read from a homily by Father John Whiteford of St. Jonah Orthodox Church in Spring, Texas. In this homily, Father Whiteford draws on the example of St. Theodosia to talk about the importance of coming to church and venerating the holy things, even during the COVID pandemic. St. Theodosia was born to pious parents in Constantinople and her mother had been praying for a child for a long period of time. When the martyr Anastasia appeared to her and told her that her prayers would be answered, and then she conceived and later gave birth to St. Theodosia, whose name means given by God, appropriately. St. Theodosia's father died when she was seven years old. Her mother placed her in the Convent of the Resurrection, which was in Constantinople, and then her mother also died and left her a large fortune. Out of that fortune, she commissioned three icons, an icon of Christ, an icon of the Theotokos, and an icon of the martyr Anastasia, and then she gave the rest of her fortune to the poor. Iconoclasm was a heresy that was inspired by Islam. Prior to the advent of Islam, there was no one in the church that was talking about how you can't venerate icons, you can't make icons. This was something that people did and didn't think about. As a matter of fact, at the Sixth Economical Council, there was a canon that mentioned icons that were being incorrectly painted and said how they should be painted. And it was mentioned in passing without any hint that it was a controversial thing that people would have icons that they would paint or they would venerate. As a matter of fact, if you go to the catacombs in Rome, where the early Christians often went to have services, you'll find that they are covered with icons from floor to ceiling. So this was something that Christians always did. But you had a series of emperors who came from areas where Islam made a lot of inroads, so they were influenced by the iconoclasm that Muslims practiced. The first of these was the Emperor Leo the Isaurian. He became the emperor in the year 717 and remained the emperor until 741. He issued a series of ed edicts against the veneration of icons, starting in the year 726 through the year 729. Then in the year 730, he removed by force St. Germanus, who was the patriarch of Constantinople, because he refused to go along with these things and he replaced him with Anastasios, who was an iconoclast, so a pseudo-patriarch. In that same year, the emperor ordered that a very famous icon of Christ be removed and hung on the Schalke Gate, or the Bronze Gate, which was the primary entrance, the ceremonial entrance to the imperial palace. 
So an Imperial Guard climbed up a ladder with an axe and was about to knock the icon to the ground. And Saint Theodosia, along with a group of women, ran and they shook the ladder and he fell to his death. Then there were a group of monks that took the ladder away. Then Saint Theodosia took a group of pious women of Constantinople, both high and modest stations in society, and they had rocks and clubs in their hands, and they went to the Patriarchate, and they showered the pseudo-patriarch Anastasios with rocks. He escaped with his life, and so he continued on with his heresy, but these were women not to be trifled with. When it came to someone trying to desecrate an icon of the Saviour, they weren't just going to sit idly by and let that happen. No doubt they knew that it was not likely to go well for them when they did this, so the Emperor ordered that the women with her were to be beheaded. Saint Theodosia, however, was tortured for a period of time. She was locked in prison for a week, and they gave her a hundred lashes every day. Then on the eighth day, they led her about the city, and they beat her as they dragged her through the streets. Then they took her to a place that was called the Oxfield, which was a place of public execution. One of the soldiers took a ram's horn and hammered it into her throat, and she received the crown of martyrdom. I don't think Saint Theodosia would have said, you know what, I'm not going to kiss the icons because there's a virus going around. I don't think she would have said, I'm not going to go to church because there's a virus going around. I know she wouldn't say, I'm not going to take communion because I might get sick. Because how can you possibly get sick from partaking of the body and blood of Christ? Now if you don't believe it's the body and blood of Christ, stay home. Because maybe you will get sick if you don't believe it. If you're an atheist, there's no point in coming to church anyway. Why bother? But if you really believe it's the body and blood of Christ, if you really believe that God is who he says he is, then you ought to be able to just trust God that he is going to take care of you and that his will will be done. We have a faith today. We have a church that still exists. And we are all here today as Orthodox Christians because thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of our forebears were willing to lay down their life for their faith. So we shouldn't allow these kinds of temptations to distract us from our focus. They shouldn't keep us from coming to church. They shouldn't keep us from praying. We owe it to them, and we certainly owe it to the Saviour to remain focused and to keep doing the things that we know we're supposed to be doing as Orthodox Christians, and to trust God because, after all, what's the worst that could happen? You could die and you could be with Christ. So what are you worried about? Don't be concerned about these things. Trust God, and God will take care of the rest. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Christian Saints Podcast. Look for the Christian Saints podcast page on Facebook or Instagram, or find us on Twitter at podcast underscore saints. All music in this episode was composed by my good friend, James John Marks of Generative Sounds. Please check out his music at generativesoundsjjm.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review on iTunes, or whatever podcast app you use, so more people can find the Christian Saints podcast and be blessed by these stories of God's saints. Let us end with the Troparian and Kontakian 
for Saint Theodosia of Constantinople. Your lamb, Theodosia, O Jesus, calls out to you in a loud voice. I love you, O my bridegroom, and in seeking you I endure suffering. In baptism I was crucified so that I might reign in you, and died so that I might live with you. Accept me as a pure sacrifice, for I have offered myself in love. By her prayers save our souls, since you are merciful. Through your striving, O venerable Theodosia, you inherited a life of peace. By shedding your blood, you vanquished the enemy of the Church of Christ. As you rejoice now in his presence, ever pray to him for us all. Thank you.